I wonder how you react uh, or reacted uh, when you heard that we were going to be talking about uh, eco-church or the environment. Um, I'm going to give you the chance to turn to somebody sitting next to you. Uh, It is allowed to be somebody you know well because I want you to be honest with them. And you're not going to have to tell me your feedback. There's going to be no hands up. You can just, just do not. Genuinely and truly, how did you feel? when we said, we're going to talk about the environment. Okay? Go. Cool. Okay. Um, so, I'm going to take a punt here, okay? My guess is that if I were, to, if I were able to see speech bubbles and thought bubbles above people's heads, um, it would be a, a real proper thoroughgoing mess and mixture. Um, there would be some people who would have been quite excited about it, my gut sense is that the majority would not have been, not because actually most of us would be anti-environmental concern or think this is a terrible thing, um, but there can be a little bit of a, really, some more? We do a lot of it at school. I say we. <laughs> you do a lot of it at school. Uh, we see a lot of it on the news. It's sort of, it's obvious, of course, we're going to be in favour of environmental concern. Of course, we're concerned about climate change. But it's quite hard, actually, to get ourselves sort of worked up about it on a Sunday night. Monday morning is Monday morning. It's coming soon. You know, you're asking me to care about something more, something extra. And I I picked up on something Stuart said, and interestingly enough, Helen said something similar this morning when she was talking, that that things like this, issues become a sort of bolt-on bit to faith. So we're doing our faith bit over here, we're coming to church, we're praying, we're, we maybe can sort of talk out loud about how Jesus has forgiven us and we get to be his friends. And then you're asking me to care about this bit as well. Do something about this bit. And actually, life's hard work already. You know, you're adding an extra thing on. Um, and the danger is that we simply feel like, as a church, we're sort of grabbing hold of the coattails of an issue that in our culture is already running fast. You know, as if we're just going, oh yeah, okay, that's popular, we better make sure we talk about the environment. I want to suggest that actually our attitude to God's amazing creation is absolutely of a piece. It's absolutely made of the same stuff. It comes from the same place, the same uh, dynamic, the same reaction as the whole of faith does. This isn't a bolt-on extra. It works the same way. And in about 12 and a half minutes, I just want to land us into the next bit of Luke, because that's what we've been working our way through in our terms on uh, Sunday afternoons. And I want to show you, I hope I can show you, that the way that Jesus talks about faith and forgiveness, the way that he takes us right to the heart of what faith actually is, is exactly the way that we need to be thinking and approaching the issue of the environment and God's creation. They aren't two separate things. The you know, sort of religious, spiritual stuff over here and how we do faith and somehow over here an issue we need to care about. They come from the same place. They're made of the same stuff. Um, please have open, if you, if, you, if you wouldn't mind, page 1036 in your Bibles. Um, I'm, we're not going to have a, a formal reading. Uh, we're hopefully just going to explore the story a little bit in a few minutes. 10.36, Luke chapter 7, verse 36. So, here's the setting. The setting is that at the beginning of Luke chapter 7, which we looked at last week, we got the centurion, and we got Jesus 
saying that this centurion had more remarkable faith than uh, Jesus had seen in the whole of Israel. And we said last time that faith, in Bible terms, isn't primarily a set of things we believe. Faith, in Bible terms, isn't primarily a lifestyle or a set of religious practices. Faith is not actually, in Bible terms, primarily how strongly we believe something and certainly not how well we feel about it. Faith, in Bible terms, is the open hands we have to receive God's gift. That's what faith is. God gives to us in Jesus. That's the the, the meaning of grace. God gives to us before we give to him. Faith is simply having open hands to receive. So last time we were unpacking what that means, that actually it's to do with the greatness of God's gift, not the greatness of my faith. It's to do with God's faithfulness to me, not my faithfulness to him. And that's really good news as far as I'm concerned, because my hands often leak, they're, they're, they're weak, they're feeble, they're, they're all over the place, but actually God's grace, God's gift is good. So we've got the centurion, strong, powerful, fairly wealthy, certainly well-to-do, at one end of Luke 7, and at the other end of Luke 7, we've got this woman. And this woman uh, is, to use Luke's glorious euphemism, uh, is a, uh, a woman who lived a sinful life, verse 37, which all of Luke's readers would have known meant a prostitute. And she's a prostitute who arrives in the middle of a posh dinner party. It's a wonderful scene. Uh, you've, got, um, you've got this man, Simon, who's a Pharisee, and the Pharisees were the religious leaders, and they were, they were reasonably well off. They were probably fairly wealthy. Uh, he certainly had a home in which he could throw dinner parties, and in that, those days, you know, there wasn't a huge middle class. You were sort of there or you were there. So he was definitely up here. And Simon, the Pharisee, uh, was respectable, with a good capital R. He was uh, well thought of in the community. He would have lived a very sort of devout life. He would have been respected as a teacher, He would have been the sort of person that you'd be really glad to associate with. And you would have been dead chuffed to get invited for dinner with him. And he invites Jesus to come and eat with him. Now, that's a really good thing. You know, not all the Pharisees were pro-Jesus. The fact that this man, Simon, wanted Jesus in his home, that was a good good start. He obviously thought there was something going on in Jesus that he wanted close to and wanted a piece of. Fantastic. And then this odd thing happens that it says that um, in the house of this Pharisee, verse 37, When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume, and as she stood behind him in his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Tears. And in our culture, we're going, hang on. You've got Simon having a dinner party in his house, and suddenly this woman just wanders in off the street. Makes no sense in our context. That's because you and I don't have people around to our house for a party or for dinner and leave the doors and windows open, generally. But in that culture, you absolutely did, especially if you were reasonably well off, because you wanted people to come and watch. It it was a sort of spectator sport. So people would come to the windows. It's not like they had glass in them. They might have had shutters if they were really posh. You'd throw those open. The doors would be wide open. People would come in and they would watch. And often you'd have uh, beggars hoping for a little bit of tidbits from the table. You'd have all sorts of characters coming just to have a little look, seeing who's in there. It's Jesus. You'd be quite used to it. But can you imagine the embarrassment of Simon, the Pharisee, the respected religious leader, hosting a dinner party with Jesus, this respected, increasingly prominent possible prophet, and this woman who was renowned in your town as a prostitute, as somebody who would have been seen as the absolute lowest of the low, doesn't just sort of 
sneak in at the edge. She comes right over to Jesus, and she goes to anoint his head with perfume. Now, it's worth saying a word about that. Um, Go back 2,000 years, and in the absence of hot showers, hot water at all, soap, shampoo, and deodorant, what would you expect in a hot uh, house? Yeah. I mean, in in this environment, if we'd been in the Middle East in those days, even just this number of people, it would have honked. It would be seriously smelly. The people you were sitting next to, you would just have to put up with the fact that you would have their BO just sort of washing over you, and worse. That was just how it was. On the other hand, if you were a reasonably wealthy woman, and or, ironically, within that culture, at the other end of the scale, if you were a reasonably successful prostitute, you would have perfume. And you would wear it in a little alabaster jar around your neck. And it would be sealed. It wasn't the sort of perfume you'd take out and dab a little bit on. You'd have little holes around the top just to let the aroma come out. And you would wear it here. So you didn't smell quite as bad. So here's this woman. And she intends to come in and anoint Jesus with perfumed oil. Now that seems very odd to us. Or, you, know, she's, you know, We'd look at that and go, well, she's doing something very strange. Again, within that culture, that wasn't quite so odd. Anointing people with oil was a sign of respect and of honor, even of worship. She was wanting to say something of Jesus, of of something of, she recognized in him something precious. But notice, she was going to have to break the jar. She was going to have to pour out literally probably her only precious possession. The only thing she owned, almost certainly, that was worth anything. And it has to be said bluntly, the only thing that enabled her to pursue her profession. She was going to break open this jar. She was going to pour it over Jesus. And yet, she is so overcome that she ends up on the floor at his feet. She ends up, she wants to be up here. She ends up at the floor at his feet. She she is sobbing so much that her tears wet his feet. She ends up sort of drying them with her hair and then thinking, well, I'm down here. I'm going to anoint his feet with oil. Can you imagine how Simon felt? I mean, just sort of put that whole picture together. Here is a, here is a, a, a woman who we wouldn't want anywhere near his house. Here is a display of affection and emotion and, and, and sort of over-the-top devotion that he wouldn't want anywhere near Jesus. And he starts inside to just bubble, to boil. He's cross. He's cross at this woman. He's actually cross at Jesus. And it says, he said to himself, verse 39, if this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is. She's a sinner. And then Jesus, knowing what's going on inside him, just turns to him and tells him this tiny little fable. I mean, we'd think of it as almost a bit like an Aesop's fable. Incredibly simple, incredibly obvious point. Simon probably felt quite patronized by it because it's so obvious. He basically, Jesus says to him, imagine two people who owe, owe some money. One owes a lot, one owes less. They're both forgiven their debts. Who's going to love the person who forgave them more? And Simon says, well, pretty obvious. It's going to be the person who's forgiven the most. You know, if you owe somebody £100 and somebody else owes £10,000, who's going to be the most grateful? Well, of course, the person who is forgiven £10,000. And Jesus points at this woman And he basically, in verses 44 onwards, he basically says a whole load of things that Simon in that culture should really have done for Jesus as an honoured guest and says, you didn't do it for me. She did. And the reason she did, he says, verse 47, is because she knows that she's forgiven. She gets it. She 
is a person of gratitude, is the word we'd use. And I simply want to suggest that at the very heart of the Christian faith, that beating heart of faith, is gratitude. The difference between Simon and this woman, the thing that makes this woman the person that Jesus holds up as a, as a person of faith, not Simon, clearly isn't education. Simon's an educated man. This woman would never have had an education in her life in that culture. It clearly isn't a tick box list of good and bad deeds. He was a religious teacher. She was a prostitute. It clearly wasn't respectability or the ability to have a dinner party in your house with honoured guests. It clearly wasn't any of the things that you and I would assume would make for a good person. Jesus simply says, it all boils down to gratitude. Listen to these last few words. I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loves much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. Now, I don't think he's saying to Simon, you haven't really sinned very much, so you don't have a lot to be grateful for. She's sinned a lot. She's got a lot to be grateful for. I think what he's doing is giving a Simon a big dig in the ribs and saying, you both need to be grateful. You both need gratitude. You both need to know that you've been forgiven. But you presume. You think you're good enough. You've, you think you're, you're respectable enough and living a good enough life, and you're looking down on this woman, and, and she, actually, she's got it, and you don't. Because she is living a life of gratitude. Right at the heart of what it means to follow Jesus is simply to look in our hands and to see this incredible gift God's given us. Actually, the incredible gifts. And that's where I want to circle back to where Stuart started, it off, started us off. Because for this woman, sure, the gift that she was looking at in her hands, the gift that she was adoring Jesus for, was that here was somebody in all her life, here was the one who had looked at her with love and acceptance and welcome and forgiveness. She knew she didn't deserve any of that. Her heart was full of gratitude and love, and it saved her. Maybe you and I are quite familiar with this idea that God forgives us, that he loves us as we are. That's a beautiful gift. But the Bible says that our lives are full of gifts that God gives us. I wonder how many breaths you've taken since you woke up this morning. Every single breath is pure gift. You haven't earned it. It's not some special skill you've learned. The food that's on your table, the, the, the roof over your head, the clothes on your back, the holidays you get to take, the friends you're part of, your family, this community, even just sitting in a building like this in, in peace and knowing that we're not going to get raided by the police or whatever it is. I mean, all of those different bits of life, they're pure gift. I've often said, haven't I, that if you had simply by accident of birth been born in northern Sudan, in a refugee camp somewhere, you wouldn't have pretty much any of those things. It's pure gift. And throughout the Bible, this thread that runs all the way through is that the most important thing we can do is to look at what God has given us and say, thank you. To respond with gratitude. And that is the thread that connects up the whole of the Christian life. It's what connects up what you do in church on a Sunday, as we worship with song and in prayer, with what you're doing on Monday morning in work, with what you're doing on Wednesday night with your family, with what you're doing on Friday night if you're going out somewhere, with what we're doing to do with the environment. Because it's all to do with saying, all of this is gift. I can live like Simon and say, look at this, I deserve this, 
I'm up here, I'm doing well for myself. Or I can recognize the heart of this woman and say, this is just pure, lavish, undeserved gift. So if God has given this gift to us of this amazing world, well then, of course, my response is going to be to care for it, to steward it right, to be generous with it, to share it with others, to treat it as I would treat any precious gift that's given to me. It's all part of what it means to walk with Jesus. It's not a bolt-on extra. We're not simply trying to grab hold of the coattails of a trendy issue that the world's got. This is absolutely part of who we are as followers of Jesus. So we're going to try really hard as a church to get better in these five areas of, of church life. But we're going to keep trying to encourage one another in our homes, in our workplaces, as individuals, to say, well, this is part of who I am as a Christian, to recognize all of this is gift. All of this is God's lavish, precious gift to me. How will I care for it? How will I make sure that I don't use it and abuse it to the extent that others miss out on it? And how will this be part of a whole life lived in response to the God who gets there first, who loves me before I love him, who gives to me before I give to him? Because Jesus says of that woman, your faith has saved you. So we're going to pray. Uh, John's going to come and lead us in a song as the children in a moment come and rejoin us. And uh, perhaps the, the simplest way of, of responding and coming towards communion is simply that image I use a lot, I know, of faith as, a, as hands that receive God's good gifts. Simply count them off in our heads. What have you enjoyed of God's good creation since you woke up this morning? What have you eaten? What have you seen? What air have you breathed in? What, have, what strength have you had in your body, in your mind? And we're going to respond with gratitude to that. Let's stand together. I'm going to pray. Loving Creator God, thank you that you have given to us far long before we ever gave to you. Thank you that even before we were so much as thought of, even before human beings appeared in this planet, you had poured your lavish creative power into this universe creating a place in which we could live and move and enjoy life we pray that you would give us hands and hearts wide open to receive from you and that our response would be that of determined sacrificial lives loving you back even as we find ourselves loved giving to others even as we find ourselves on the receiving end of gift In Jesus' name, amen.